I think at big companies, and this gets a little bit to the point I was making about headcount, I think what we found was in a pre-software world, it was hard for people to even understand how to deploy us. And they had problems all over the organization, probably in some way tracking back to not having the right piece of talent, but it was actually quite hard to figure out and track what those were. And so we almost said, we need to interrupt people on the path to not knowing what to do and help land for them. Does it make sense to outsource this to a platform like Catalan? Maybe there's a great person internally who can do this piece of work and to think about the flexible talent landscape in a more holistic way, rather than I need a barista at the Omni Hotel in Dallas on September 21st. We now live in an on-demand economy. Netflix brought us thousands of movies on demand. Action! Cut. DoorDash delivered restaurants to our front door. And Uber made it possible to get anywhere in town with one click. This is rapidly changing our expectations and how work gets done. We're now one click away from an accountant in QuickBooks. They just put CPAs in their software. A doctor with Teladoc. Now let's take care of that fever. Okay. I'm your host, Paul Estes. Each episode will get insights from operators, thought leaders, executives, and experts who are embracing technology to remove the friction in the way work gets done. Welcome to Work On Demand. Every year, over 800 tech and staffing leaders gather in Dallas for the SIA Gig E-Conference. We sat down with seven of them. Here are their stories. So I'm here at SIA with Rob Biederman. And I have to say, Rob, I we've both kind of been around the gig economy and I've seen you uh, on the internets and I've read some of your things and I've read about uh, Catalan, but I've never met you IRL. So it's uh, it's great to see you in, in person. Great to meet you in person. Um, you know, for those that, that haven't gotten to see Rob, he's a lot better looking in person than his beautiful pictures. So. I was going to say, people often say I'm shorter than they expected. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, tell me a little bit about uh, Catalan, and then we'll just get into some questions about uh, your journey. Sure, of course. So to, to understand more about Catalan, you obviously have to think back to 2013 when we're starting the company, not today when gig economy is is certainly a little less people have heard the word yeah it's not it's not strange um i think what was going on then was you had uber airbnb TaskRabbit, but there was no real enterprise facing gig economy and certainly there was nothing for folks that had worked at mckinsey goldman sachs and at the same time so if you go back to pat and i co-founders pat had been a management consultant had not been a very happy management consultant. Had, <laughs> Wait, hang on. Are there things it or called not, yeah. happy management consultants? And I think what got under his skin was, you know, he was a talented person, but was never deployed in the right way. And, and the, the quantity was too big and the quality wasn't very good. And uh, I, as a buyer of consulting in my job in private equity, was always honestly pretty disappointing with the output. So we hypothesized you could put together a marketplace to connect uh, companies or private equity firms that needed talent with people that maybe had just left McKinsey and were taking care of a sick relative or wanted to go out on their own. And that network today is over 100,000 people doing over $100 million of revenue, uh, working on the most important impactful pro problems for GE and Pfizer and Moderna and other you know really important needle moving companies. So what was the moment every founder sort of has a moment, right? Where they wake up and they're like, hey, I'm not going to follow this road, I'm going to found a company because, I mean, other people do it, so I, I sure can do it. Like, when was the moment that you realized, hey, I'm going to become a founder? Well, you know, as somebody who runs a VC firm right now, I'm, part of my job is kind of midwifing people through the, I'm going to found a company journey because we do a lot of hatches. The reality is back in 2013 and even today, founding a company is actually quite intimidating. Um, 
you probably assume you have to be good at engineering or sales or design. Pat and I were none of those things. <laughs> um, and if you don't have a really good inspired idea, fundraising is hard. Uh, and if you're not probably in one of a handful of ecosystems, that feels weird. I think for us, when, when we put out the just test version of the product just as a class project, what we kept seeing was that people from big companies were coming and checking out using their Gmail and their personal credit card for projects that were clearly for the company and then getting them reimbursed. And we said, man, what does that suggest about how fatigued they are with all of the options that are available? And that's when we decided to really go for it to start of stop being students in the main and really run the company while we were, while we were in business school. That's one of the stories I was actually talking to uh, someone today. When I was at Microsoft, I actually paid out of my pocket my own money <laughs> because I simply couldn't get things done in the structure, you know, the staffing or the, the full time. You just you couldn't get things done. You didn't have access to the, the right experts. So I, I paid out of my own pocket because I wanted to show up and, and get good work done. Let's go back to 2013. What were the early days like? Again, this is, you know, it sounds like a long, long time ago. It was a long time ago. But like, tell me about the early days of of trying to get people, you know, remote work wasn't a thing. Totally. Yeah. So you, if you think back to 2013, all of the assumptions you have now, file sharing, remote video, honestly, high speed bandwidth connections in a lot of cases uh, weren't, weren't real, right? This is pre-Zoom, pre a lot of other things. And people were really not accustomed to the idea of flexible gig work because even when we started the company, Uber was still a relatively small thing. TaskRabbit was really not that relevant. And so we were really proving new ground and we didn't, I think when we first went out to businesses, it was very much a, we're here from Harvard Business School, we can do, what can we do to help? And you can imagine how well that went over, which was not very well. Um, what changed, and I think Pat had this insight in a, in a literal taco stand in Harvard Square was, it wasn't about how good the business idea was. Nobody, it turns out your customers couldn't care less how thoughtful your company is. They want to know if you have a reasonably priced solution to their problem that day. And we moved from kind of a, trying to convince people that we were really smart, which didn't really get us anywhere, <laughs> to trying to convince people that they had a business problem we could solve and, uh, or the people on our, our platform could. The supply side was completely organic. So we recruited a handful of people from other business schools. And from that to 100,000 people, it's been substantially completely inbound. The corporate side was originally inbound. And then we realized sales and marketing could really actually uh, really actually spur that. And so now we work with a pretty healthy fraction of the Fortune 100. And it's, again, it's kind of not on the, hey, we need to make system A talk to system B. It's actually, we have this big strategic dilemma and we're not really sure what to do. Give me an example of where you saw the magic of the model. Where you, you know, because I, I always tell a story. There's a, a freelance researcher uh, named Kosher that I've been working with for probably six years. And he provides better market landscape analysis than I would pay other consulting firms a quarter of a million dollars for. Like the, the work product was better. Yep. It was delivered faster. Yep. So that's like an example of, and, and this is Fortune you know, 50 research that you're looking for. What was the time when you saw the Catalan, the magic of the Catalan model? Yeah, you know, I think maybe one of the biggest examples, and this is probably 2013 or 2014, one of our uh, original VC investors was very focused on a thing called Bitcoin, uh, which we'd never heard of. And they were going <laughs> to hire- Which you loaded up on. <laughs> yeah, well, unfortunately, we <laughs> didn't load up on it. That was the worst part. Uh, they went to Bain and Company and they got a, a bid of $2 million to do a project on what is Bitcoin and how should we be involved, which obviously for a VC firm is absurd. Somebody on our platform for $5,000 made this absurd 75-page pitch deck, 75 page pit deck 
making an argument for Bitcoin, advocating for it. Here's how it's going to work. There's going to be other coins. Obviously, Pat and I did not, unfortunately, take advantage <laughs> of that insight. Which but with 2013, it would have been nothing. A yeah. fraction of a penny? Yeah. Something, maybe probably something. cents, if, if not maybe a yeah, couple yeah. dollars. Um, and we had another example of that where, where a customer was looking for uh, a metals and mining expert in Ukraine. And we were really worried because at that point, we probably only had five, six, <laughs> seven thousand people on the platform. And we not only had one, we had two. And it shows you, and I'm sure this is covered in your book, if you're a full-time consulting firm with 5, 10, 15,000 employees, undoubtedly they're all really smart, well-trained people, but you can't possibly keep on staff the breadth and depth of all of the- A, a Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian mining expert. Correct. Yeah, exactly. That person is not economic to keep on staff full-time. Uh, but if you can leverage this, the spare capacity of, as it turns out, over 100,000 people, people do other things. And then the day that number gets called, they're available to turn on. All of this makes complete sense. I, I mean, I couldn't imagine a world otherwise. What is the resistance you feel, or oh. what is the challenge why more, why you're not a $4 billion company? It's a, it's a great question. We, we think about that almost in every board meeting. What, I, what I'd say is um, the Catalan model undoubtedly produces better net promoter score, better outcomes, better costs, cheaper, so, all the above. In, in every application of the gig model, you always Does get that. better, faster, cheaper. Better, faster, cheaper. I think the difference is when, if you think about your path, I assume you use Uber or Lyft or anything mm -hmm. like that. There was nobody to stop you. One day you said, instead of getting a taxi or a black car chauffeur, I'm just going to use Uber or Lyft because it's better, faster, cheaper. The reality, the practical reality within a, a large corporation in the US at least, is that there are so many different boogeymen on the path to do, doing something cool and innovative. Part of it goes through, honestly, the budgeting procedure because as we all know, in big companies, a lot of your validation and, and in fact, probably power in the enterprise goes through the number of full-time employees you have. Uh, there are also legal and compliance things you have to set up along the way. And we work them all out. So eventually everybody gets onboarded to Catalan. But I think the biggest challenge is just speed of onboarding new customers because you do have to go check all of those boxes, which in a disruptive consumer context, you don't. So I've been following Catalan uh, since I've been looking at the space and I've noticed you pivot um, from a more traditional talent network to a platform. We're talking about yep. software. Why? I think what we found was if you are a staffing provider, so let's say you're somebody who provides um, servers at events, there isn't really any behavioral change that's required. So let's say I'm a catering company and I've decided to have a completely flexible 1099 workforce as my barista and my bartender. Great. I, every, way, every day I wake up and I have to go staff an event. So I go to my gig economy barista and bartender company and they give me people. I think at big companies, and, and this gets a little bit to the point I was making about headcount, I think what we found was in a pre-software world, it was hard for people to even understand how to deploy us. And they had problems all over the organization, probably in some way tracking back to not having the right piece of talent, but it was actually quite hard to figure out and track what those were. And so we almost said, we need to interrupt people on the path to not knowing what to do and help land for them. Hey, are we, does it make sense to um, outsource this to a platform like Catalan? Maybe there's a great person internally who can do this, this piece of work and to think about the flexible talent landscape in a more holistic way, rather than I need a barista at the Omni Hotel in Dallas on so, September 21st. So is it more to start understanding the outcome saying, Hey, if I, if I go and create some technology mm -hmm. that understands the outcome, 
then yeah, maybe you can source it from my talent network or maybe you can source it internally, but I'm going to understand the outcome first. Yeah, I think that's basically right. If you, if you think about, uh, we, we have a sort of an enterprise offering now when we work with enterprise customers, we want to understand their needs in a holistic way. So it's not just random VP and marketing decided to paint Catalan. It's actually, here's the set of things that we should be working on for you this year in a kind of holistic, comprehensive, not last minute way. I've been coming to SIA for I guess three or four years. You're now in the you're now a VC. Yep. You're in the venture capital <laughs> uh, business. Uh, what are you seeing uh, in the companies here yep. or in the space? Like, if you have to look at the trends yep. that's happening in the staffing, the idea of of talent, where what are the areas that you're seeing that are interesting? Yeah, look, obviously we make a lot of investments in flexible work platforms. It's very authentic to us. We we probably get a ping on every new one that starts. One, one cool area that we've been able to exploit, I think, as a firm is areas of the flexible staffing industry that maybe aren't as obvious. So we all I even think Catalan now is is a little obvious. Um, one of our most exciting companies, a company called Halo, where we actually that, announced our fundraising round yesterday. It, I, I don't want to cannibalize your no, future no, no, it, was, it was actually the next question ah. I was going to ask because it's it's a really interesting application sure. of the same sort of thinking. But Yes, yeah, so I'll go back to Halo when you ask the next question. So another great company we have is called Torque. Uh, which uh, we actually hatched with me and the uh, the, the, the former uh, CEO and co-founder of Cognizant mm -hmm. and the founding team members of the founding team from Topcoder. Yep. The idea there is that there are a lot of online platforms where you can get a flexible engineer. There are not a lot where you can get a really high-end flexible engineer deployed really quickly to be less of a execution person and more of a architect kind of thought partner. And we've been able to infuse that company with a lot of talent uh, that had previously left Catalan. We've been able to bring in uh, a ton of people from Topcoder. And what we're building there is really exciting. And that company is growing unbelievably quickly. Um, Halo, when we first met the guy, I think we gave him a term sheet in a couple hours because it was so apparent to us that university research scientists should not probably be full-time employed by Pepsi or Pfizer or all of the above. And yet, when you need one of those people, there's really no substitute. McKinsey can do a bad job of what Catalan can do, but no, if you are the plastics person at University of Colorado and you're the only one who understands it, there's really no substitute. And, that, and those people have very specific niches. Exactly. And if that person's a tenured faculty member, they're probably for 50 different reasons, don't want to come to New Jersey and work for you, you know, every single day. Well, and they're not working time. in ac academia because they want to go work at Pepsi. Correct. Exactly. And that and that's been that's been pretty cool. One one other platform that we actually so let's let's go did. back. I just I want to go back to to Halo for, for sure. Explain to me a little bit about what they do. Yep. So Halo has a slightly different model than Catalan. What Halo does is you have two big segments of their customers. They call them planet savers and uh, essentially drug discovery pharma. Those folks have typically probably open innovation platforms where they want to bring in a shot of expertise. And they probably do that in an RFP model. So Catalan has a search process. I don't, we don't really call it an RFP. And Halo is actually a SaaS model where you basically buy access to the network of scientists. You're constantly posting RFPs, but then you're also kind of building towards partnership with them in the interim. So even when you don't have an RFP, so we call it kind of an always-on external innovation partnering platform more than an RFP platform. Because the problem with RFPs is that they're completely kind of reactive. 
it's not a particularly interesting way. And what, what we want to help our customers do at Halo is actually form a ongoing relationship with the corporate. And so when they have a quick question, hey, we're going to ping you know, Tom and bring him in for a half day. We don't need to go through the RFP process. We can just be able to work with him on kind of a as-needed as basis. basis. Yeah, which I think is really cool because obviously companies before Halo brought in university talent for research projects, for sure. Nobody's done it in quite a um, incredibly spontaneous and dynamic way where you can atomize it down to a half day or a day or two. Give me an example where a customer for Halo specifically um, is engaging with a scientist just to make it real for yeah, somebody yeah, for sure. like and you have to name the name of the company yeah, it'll probably be very clear lots of companies in the u.s sell soda in plastic bottles um <laughs> and in aluminum cans uh principally two companies uh they're on a continuous quest to put less plastic and less aluminum in those receptacles and material scientists at university are consistently pushing the membrane there so it's not like they just redesigned the 12 ounce soda can, and then it freezes for six years, which is what I assumed. It's actually that there's constantly new developments in making it better. And they obviously, for a lot of reasons, want to get continue to get better at less aluminum in the cans. Um, and so they will periodically ping them and say, you know, what have you done lately that could basically maybe shrink this from this many pounds of aluminum per 144 to this? Historically, has it been hard for the academia to get is is part of the friction removing uh, the ability for those two people to connect? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge is you have somebody at the university whose job nominally is kind of licensing tech transfer, corporate partnering. It's actually a big part of the research budget of these institutions is corporate funded research. I had no idea. In a pre-marketplace world, if you think that you're the person at, at generic soda company that wants to go out and find that person, you start with, you know, Google, what are the top aluminum material science departments in the world? Okay, now I have to go through the faculty page. What did they do their research on? So it's, it's an awful search process versus I'm going to post this and Halo is going to notify somebody who is focused on aluminum, focused on that. And so, you know, you can probably compress the search process. I think one, one of our diligence calls suggested it went from several months to a couple of days. That's the one thing I always uh, liked about the top coder model, because you put a challenge out there and it's, uh, you know, Steve Rader over at NASA talks about yeah, this all the time. He was on a podcast, I'll plug, uh, where we talked about how the uh, toilets in the space station were created. And they were actually created by a consultant who had nothing to do with either toilets or the space station. But the, but the point being is that in these models where you put the idea out there and you make it open to anyone, you're surprised at what you always get back. Undoubtedly. And it's better, faster, cheaper. Yeah, and I think what I've always been a little uh, skeptical of whether crowdsourcing can be helpful when you have a problem with a known solution. I've always felt crowdsourcing is great when you have a needle in a haystack and you want to essentially cheaply and quickly get many, many minds to work on a problem. If you think of crowdsourcing actually as the sourcing phase, so we want to find the person and then we're going to partner with them on something that is actually knowable. So it's not trying to spin the wheel a hundred times and hope it lands on the right number, but it's actually that we know that if we have one of the seven people in the world who knows the answer to this question, we can do it. We just don't know who the seven people are. So when you look at this space, having been in it since 2013, when Uber was just a baby and you know, well before um, as big as it is now, where's it going? Oh, I think we're in the first inning. I mean, look, obviously Uber's done really well. 
to some extent, TaskRabbit and other platforms like that have done really well. But if you look at American headcount or global headcount that's still full-time employed, it's you know a very, very large fraction. There are, there are contractors and freelancers, particularly at companies like Microsoft, that have been pretty thoughtful about that. Um, but as a percentage of all workers, it should be half, 60 70%. And I estimate it's probably less than 10 or 20 um, and I think it's in some of the most dynamic value additive ways. Like if you think about what's the value, let's say you're, once again, you think of, you know, Microsoft has an events department. They sometimes have W2 bartenders or 1099 bartenders. Maybe those people are better, maybe they're less expensive, maybe they're more flexible, but it doesn't probably move the Microsoft innovation function by that much that they've gone W2 to 1099 at that. But imagine if in your strategy function, so Catalan, you know, primarily sells to strategy officers, you're capable of bringing in burst expertise and that unlocks a new, you know, 20% revenue opportunity. That That is a huge untapped source of expertise. You brought up an interesting part about classification being a way to to value or think of a of, of worker. Part of the, what I'm buying in that relationship is, hey, they work at McKinsey. When I show up and maybe I had experience at McKinsey, do you find people drawing that line of finding more value because of how a person may be employed? I, I've seen it. I, the reason I'm yeah. asking is I, I, I... It's a really, it's, it's, a, it's maybe even a deeper question than I think you might realize because I think in the first phase of Catalan, what we were trying to do was replicate whatever is going on in your brain when you see the McKinsey logo, which was uh, round one was you hired McKinsey. Round two, we asserted to you, hey, this person worked at McKinsey. They just happened to have left, but they're still legally smart. McKinsey hired them. Yeah, McKinsey hired them and trained them, and they're no different. They might even work harder without with appropriate <laughs> incentives. Um, I think what we've done at Catalan really well is transcended the brand renting to a, no, this is the actual right person to solve your problem. And I think one of the interesting impacts of that is we have probably all things equal, more people with direct operating experience rather than pure consultants or MBA types. And I think that that's where you almost have to have a data-driven algorithmic sourcing and staffing model because it's too hard to do that with human resume match. If that makes sense. If you think yeah. of all hires happen, you say, oh, we need a finance person. Well, what do they probably do? This. Scan resumes for those words versus something a little more dynamic and way more kind of based on historical outcome correlation. So when you think of the model, is there any space, like what spaces do you think the marketplace technology gig economy model can be applied? Um, one of the most interesting spaces, and I, I presume the people in this uh, ultimately become W-2s, but a company we actually backed here in Dallas uh, almost a year ago, it's called Upsmith. They take skilled workers that are probably not maximizing their economic potential, probably Uber drivers or something of that ilk, and match them based on a bunch of factors about them to new jobs that would make them in some cases four or five times more. So, you know, they're an Uber driver today, they're making thirty dollars or $40,000 a year in a pretty unpleasant way. Outcome of working with Upsmith is they become an HVAC technician who in the southwest of the U.S. makes $120,000, $130,000, The system there is basically predicting, hey, if you have this person who is possessed with these fundamentally good traits, personable, on time, reliable, all of the above, how can we actually up, you know, up level their economic earning frontier? Well, at least at least let them know that those opportunities exist. Exactly. And that's, I think that's been one of the mild disappointments for me of the existing kind of here, here to date uh, 
gig economy is it's been really good at creating more flexibility for people who drive for Uber versus work at the same wage rate in a store. It's not clear that it's actually really increased their overall earnings profile that much. And so being able to use technology to actually identify, you're currently doing this, but you could be doing this other thing and making more money. I think that company could end up telling you, hey, you're currently a um, you know, Salesforce administrator. And if you were a Oracle administrator, you'd actually get paid 50% more. And everything that you're bringing to that Salesforce administration job is, is the exactly same the same thing. skills. And, and in theory, I actually think it's a good thing for the United States because um, if you're if you're somebody who's truly that talented and you can get that job, it would be great to move you up to that. So then somebody else can go from Uber driver to Salesforce administrator. Yeah. It's a good example. Rob, thanks for sitting down with me. Uh, I'll continue to follow not only what you're doing at Catalan, but look forward to seeing the companies you invest in uh, in your new job as a venture capitalist. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks a ton. Of course. I'm your host, Paul Estes. Thank you for listening to Work On Demand. This episode has been produced by Scott Walden at Great Scott Voice Media, with additional support from freelancers on Fiverr, Upwork, and Fancy Hands. If you've enjoyed this conversation, we'd appreciate you rating us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, or simply telling a friend about the show. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode that explores the world of Work On Demand.